Okay, so today we're going to move away from uh, presenting my own positions and what and move into the positions that have been um, offered previously um, by uh, much greater Talmud Chachamim on this issue. Um, I'm going to modify something I said at the end of last of um, last year. I think there are actually three. I think the question has actually arisen independently three times uh, before the current uh, before the current pandemic. Um, the I think the first time um, is with Razalman Nehemi Goldberg, and that's the article we're going to do today. It's an article published by Razalman Nehemi Goldberg in a book called Emek Halacha Asya in 1975. Uh, it may have been published, uh, that's a, Asya is a journal. This is, a, I think, a, a, a book version of the journal. It may have been um, written earlier, and I can't find the reference now, but I know that at the time Razalman Nehemi Goldberg wrote this, it won some sort of a prestigious prize um, in Israel. Um, there is a letter written to um, Rav Shlomo Zelman Orbach in 1975 by Dr. Shimon Glick um, that we have an exact date for. And uh, happily, uh, Rabbi Eli Fisher uh, pointed out to me when I had a question about the letter that I could just write to, Rabbi, to Dr. Glick. And so either at the end of uh, the class today or uh, next week, we'll actually, we can, we'll look at the printed versions of it, but we also have, um, we also have a, uh, a photocopy of the actual, uh, of the actual letter that Dr. Glick wrote to Rabbi Orbach, which is not printed anywhere. Uh, so far as I know, it may change uh, some things. And then the third time was uh, in 1985, I believe it is, um, a doctor in South Africa, wrote a question to Rabbi Moshe Sternbuch, uh, Rabbi Stern in Johannesburg, South Africa. Rabbi Sternbuch then for forwarded the letter to various other rabbis he respected for their opinions, and one of the rabbis he forwarded to forwarded to other rabbis. And so we have a whole series of at least five responses to that, that doctor's question by Rabbi Sternbuch, Rabbi Menashe Klein, Ritzitz uh, Eliezer, um, and uh, Rav Zalman, and I'm missing, I'm missing one as well. And those, are, those will take up next week. But today, I want to take a look at what I think really is certainly the first published treatment of the issue, which is this um, article by Rosh Zalman. It is present, sorry, by Zalman It is presented as a tshuva um, to, a, to, a, uh, to a question, but my suspicion is that he wrote the question himself, uh, having been apprised of a somewhat similar circumstance, but he massaged the fact somewhat to make the tshuva more interesting. Um, I, don't, I haven't confirmed that, but that's my suspicion that it's not that it's not an actual case, and certainly that he did not write it uh, because he was asked the question what to do in this case. Uh, he wrote it as a theoretical um, as a theoretical survey. So I'm going to try as best I can to present uh, Rabbi Goldberg's uh, arguments in and of themselves. And then, when it was published in Asia, uh, it was published with a fairly astonishing series of. The, one, of the, one of the editors, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Halperin, uh, published it, but published it with a series of critical footnotes that take up about as much space as the article itself. Uh, right, we, we're we're almost, at almost, every, at almost every point in the article, he feels constrained to take issue in fairly sharp terms uh, with Rabbi Goldberg. Without, you know, while expressing deep respect for Rabbi Goldberg, he thinks he's completely and totally wrong. Uh, so we will also... So my goal today is that we'll look at Rabbi Goldberg's arguments first, uh, and those I have tried to um, I've tried to type out the critical sections from his uh, from his article, and then after we've gone through Rabbi Goldberg's arguments, leaving out some of some of the uh, it's a 20-page article. Obviously, we're going to summarize, 
And then we'll try and go through the key places where Rabbi Halperin responds to the arguments we've done Rabbi Goldberg and see where you come out um, as a result. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen now. And it should be this. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, so uh, let's get let's go up to the very top. This is the very end. So let's should we go find, find the top fairly simply. I'm sorry. I know. My computer doesn't have a great. Uh, okay, here we go. So we're going to start with the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, Shulchan Aruch says, um, right. This is something to always keep in mind. Hagoses, harehu kechay lechol devarav. Okay, somebody who's characterized as a goses, uh, which means, right, the best we can translate is somebody who is in the process of dying, and the exact definition is going to be an issue for us all the way through. But somebody who's goses, which means that they're somewhere in the Right, somewhere fairly advanced in the dying process. If you want the conventional interpretation is they're within 72 hours of death, um, regardless of medical intervention. That, again, that definition is, is not really functional nowadays because of the capacity to sustain life much longer than previously. So we now have an assumption that the category ghosts can apply to people who will survive in some sense longer than that. But classically, that's what a ghost might have been. So the ghost is alive for all matters, okay? And there's a whole list of things that you can't do to the goses because the goses is alive. You can't tie his tongue, and you can't um, and you can't um, uh, anoint him, right. um, and you can't um, you can't move you can't push him to the side. You can't stop up his orifices, and you can't move the pillow out from underneath him. Okay, and you can't put him on sand, and you can't put him right. Most of these are processes that you'll recognize are the beginning of tara. So although the ghost is dying and the body may, right, may be still, you can't, start the, you can't start the funeral preparations, you can't start the internment preparations while he's still alive. Okay, and you can't put these things on his, right, you can't put a, uh, a, a plate on his, on his, on his um, body, right, all sorts of things that you can't, um, and you can't issue, you know, you can't issue funeral proclamations, all these things you can't hire, the, flute, the flautists and the mourners. Okay, and you can't close his eyes, Ad should say show, until he actually dies. And if you close the eyes at the moment that the nefesh is leaving, but not right, but not later, and you don't wait till afterwards, shofech damin. Okay, so this is really a, a key line. The ghost says, even though the ghost says is at the very last stage of dying, it's still shofichut damin, and really halachically it's still um, halachically it's still it's still murder up until the um, up until the point right he says Damim, but the Gemara actually says it's Ritzicha um, to kill Agosis. That seems to suggest that nothing about being nothing about being in the process of dying has any effect on the on the um, on the prohibitions against killing. When you're alive, you're alive. Okay. Now on this the Ramah adds something that has caused grave confusion for 500 years, 450 years. The Yeshon, but some say, okay, this we get, you can't, right, you can't, you can't uh, cut a grave for him, right, right, all those sorts of things. But then the Ramah adds something else. Right? It's forbidden to cause the dying person to die faster. So if you have somebody who is, has been a Gosei already for a long time, and is unable to unable to die, right? The parade means unable to have their their soul and body separate. Um, you can't remove the you can't move the cushion 
underneath him, right? So now the Ramah sounds like he's saying the same thing as the Mechaber, right? And the Mechaber said, Ein shub tina kar mitachtav. And the Ramah says, Asturli lisha meda kar vakeset mitachtav. But he adds a new line. He says, Mikoach shomrin shiyesh notzot miksat ofot shagor mimzeh. You can't push the question aside um, as because some say that there are certain birds' feathers that cause this, meaning that they cause him to remain alive. Okay, so the question, right? So Ramos says that you can't cause him to die faster, and that means you can't push the cushion from underneath him. You can't even move him from his place. You also can't put keys. Um, the abbreviation here is bet hay, which um, nowadays is almost universally understood because there are places where it was expanded to mean beta knesset, to put the keys of the shul underneath his head, kadeshi parade, so because somehow putting the keys of the shul under his head was thought to cause him to die. I have suggested that it's an error and it really should be beta kvarot, and you put the keys to the cemetery under his head, and that's why he would die. Okay. Um, Aval, it occurs to me I should probably try to make this this text bigger there. Uh, Aval, but uh, if there's something that causes, that is causing a prevention of the soul from leaving. Okay, so apparently none of these things, the, the kar and the keset, all none of these things were, were causing the prevention of the nefesh. Uh, right? These are just things that if you do them, the, he'll die, but they're not things that cause the prevention. Keep going, for example, what are things that cause a prevention of the soul from leaving? Like there's some kind of pounding noise. This is the famous woodchopper. There's salt on his tongue. And those things prevent him from dying. You're allowed to remove, um, people assume, I think correctly, that you're allowed to remove the uh, woodchopper. You're allowed to remove the salt from the tongue. Um, why? And here the Ramah is a radical claim. This is not an action at all. All you're doing is removing a prevention. Okay. Removing a prevention, since is it really okay to remove a prevention of someone dying? Why would that be? And what's the difference between removing a prevention and, let's say, saving some, right? Failing to save somebody. Um, or, as we talked, example, or allowing yourself to fall into somebody to cause their death. This causes lots of confusion. So the Shach, says, So the Shach quotes the Levush, right, a contemporary of who said, Utmihani, I'm astounded. Okay, so he says, you're not allowed to move the cushions from underneath him. Why not? Why isn't moving the cushions from underneath him if you think that the reason that the cushions are preventing him from dying because you have these feathers that cause that right the soul is somehow entangled in the feathers so why shouldn't removing the pillows be the equivalent of removing the woodchopper but the shach says i don't see any difficulty at all the reason the reason you can't take the pillow out is not because of the feathers it's despite the feathers it's because in when you move the, the pillow out, remember that the Mechaber also said this. So when you move, so when you move the pillow, says the Shach, um, what you're doing is you're, move, right, you're causing the body to move, and causing the body to move is an action that could kill the Goseis. So really, the way he reads the, the, way he reads 
the um, the the Rama. The Rama says that you might think that your dafka allowed to remove the pillows because that way you can free the goseis manaruch from his suffering. No, you right because it's the feathers that are keeping the soul from dying. But no, you can't do that because you'll be moving the body also, and that might be killing. But in a case where you're not moving the body at all, so there's no risk that you're actually killing. So the Ramah says, then it's perfectly fine. That's how the Shach understands it. Um, the Taz says something very similar, which leads to a more radical conclusion. He says, Pirish, right? Mikoch shomrim shiyesh no so. The people say feathers. Pirish, the afalgav the mitam zayesh heter lasokin. Even though, right, in terms of the feathers, it would be perfectly permissible to remove the feathers. Dahain osa kiruv mita elamesir maneyet siyas nefesh, because you're not causing the death to be closer. Instead, you're removing a prevention of the death. As he writes later, okay, he says, right? Right? If you move the if you move the result from the tongue, you're going to end up moving his mouth. Why isn't that the same as closing his eyes? So the Taz within the Ramah says, I think the Ramah's logic is right, but I think he's wrong about the salt. And he thinks we can't remove the salt from the tongue. Okay. These are the, um, right, this, this is the Mechaber and the Ramah as it appears before Rav Zalman Goldberg. I'm going to say that my own understanding, uh, my own understanding of the Ramah is, is different than Rav, um, Rav, Rav, Zalman Nechemi Goldberg's. Um, but I'm re- only in the, um, I'm, I'm only working in Rav Goldberg. So he has, the thing he has to explain the thing everyone has to explain is why does the right why does the Rama allow these cases? Um, what's the difference between Mesir Amonea and killing someone passively? And why should it be okay to be Mesir Amonea? Right? Why right? Why is why is any anything which leads to someone else's death considered as legitimate? Okay. So here's what um, Rav Zalman Nechemah Goldberg says. Okay, he says, Okay, he says, it's obvious from here that removing an obstruction to death is not a violation of the prohibition against murder. Okay, that seems pretty true. Okay, he says, and it seems pretty clear that the reason you're allowed to do this is because there's no retzicha. But now he says, But if that's the case, why do you need to go say Even with a healthy person, if you deny him something that he needs, and he dies because he's lacking something that he needs, there should be no prohibition in that at all. Okay, now, um, he's not talking about ventilators yet, but I would say when I discussed this with the summary of Midrash and ventilators, so the obvious case was scuba diving. Right, uh, right. Why, why can't you cut the airline to a scuba diver? All you're doing is preventing a prevention. If you think that ventilators are parallel to this, okay. Rizalman Nechemi is not up to ventilators yet. He says, what would be an example of a way in which, uh, right, an action that would now seem to be permitted by the Rama, um, that it's that um, it seems to him is morally un- intolerable. Right. So we'll say, look, you can. Right, you can burn somebody's food up, um, right, and then they die. Right, they die of starvation. So that won't be murder. Okay. 
And if it's not the other person's food, but you just burn, you just burn all the berries in the woods that he might have collected to keep himself alive. No Are we going to claim that uh, that there's no prohibition at all? Because again, let's look at the language of the Rama. The Rama says that these actions are permitted. Why? These are not considered actions at all. They're just removals of obstructions. So that suggests, right, that you have no responsibility for the result at all. And this is a category you might be familiar with from Hilchot Shabbat, uh, right? The question of whether you can, uh, right, whether you can close a door that uh, that blocks the wind that was keeping the fire from burning brighter. So that's called, right? That generally we assume is you're not, um, you're right, you're not lighting the fire. You're just removing an obstruction to the fire burning better. So therefore, that is generally assumed to be mutter on Shabbat. Um, so if we really claim that this is not an action at all, so the result here is going to be that there are act, there are things you can do that have as a consequence the death of another person that are perfectly fine because there's nothing about the Ramal's logic as we have read it so far, where he says, he says Ein ze masa, that requires the person who dies to be a ghost, to be a ghost. It's just the logic is this is Mesir Amunea. So if you can find a case that's Mesir Monea for a healthy person, that should also be perfectly fine. But Rav Zalman Goldberg says, and we'll find in every, everybody has their moral red lines, um, which make, you know, and they interpret the sugi in light of their moral, the moral red lines. He says, lesa. that is fundamentally inconceivable. But in addition, he says, I have proof. What's my proof? Because we have a Ron in Shavuos, And the Ron in Shavuos says that if you swear not to sleep for three days, so then we immediately give you lashes for, um, because you're not going to keep your oath. Via Shane Lalter, you can just go to sleep, right? Because the oath, right? The we treat the oath as if it's already been violated at the outset because it's impossible that you won't violate it. This is how the Ron phrases his his uh, his argument. He says, Me I was one, I was wondering. It bothered me, right? It bothered me. I had the question. If somebody swears not to eat for 30 days. Mahudina, what's the halacha? Do we compare this to an oath not to sleep for three days? And let's say, okay, let's whip, let's let's whip him immediately and let him eat immediately. Because he can't go three days without eating either. So it should be just the same as the first one. Although, or maybe we shouldn't say that now. Not because rather we'll say is look. The reason you can't go three days without sleeping is that you can't physically go three days without sleeping, um, right? You can't do it. The reason that you can't go three days without eating is that you'll die. It's not that you can't. It's not that you can avoid eating. So maybe we should say that since right, it's not inevitable that your that your oath will be broken, it's inevitable that you will choose to break your oath. Uh, so let's say that's very different, and um, let's say let's say that um, that that if you swear not to sleep for three days, then we whip you immediately because it's impossible for you to keep your oath. But if you swear not to eat for 30 days, well, last as long as you can. Okay, so now the Ron says as follows. Venerally, it seems to me that the, that the oath not to eat for 30 days is not the same as the oath, um, as the oath uh, not to sleep for three days. Because it, it gives exactly our logic. Because over there, when, right, when you say... Um, the reason you can we make we let you sleep immediately and whip you immediately is because it's impossible it will 
it will take an act right, against your will, you're going to fall asleep. And therefore, we say the shvua never applies to you at all. But this person, he might be able to withstand his oath, right? For very simply, what happens if he doesn't eat for a week and then he gets hit by lightning? So it will turn out that he kept his oath perfectly. Um, you'll say, oh, you know, but he's going to die if he doesn't eat for 30 days? Okay, so let's wait until he's, right? He can keep his oath until then. And then what we'll say is, at that point, not that the oath was a nullity from the first place, We'll just say that now he has a choice between keeping his oath and dying, and keeping your oath is not Yehreg Yavor. So he never really breaks his oath. He just keeps his oath, and, there's, and the halacha is that at certain points he shouldn't keep his oath. Mikol makom, and certainly the issue, right, will say, all, he, all, all he's allowed to eat during those 30 days should be the, what, the amount he needs to stay alive. There shouldn't be any, uh, right, there shouldn't be any notion that we, that he's allowed to eat immediately, and there's no reason we should whip him if he hasn't eaten yet, because right he's keeping his oath. So right, so now we're in Rosalind Chaim Goldberg says right we're in the so we're in the Ron. The Ron says it seems to him that the correct outcome should be that if you swear not to eat for thirty days, that we should and we should tell you try to keep your oath as best you can. But he says Elisher after the Ron reaches the conclusion he says Elisher iti la Rambam, and the Rambam says not like that. Ram says that examples of Shavuot Shav are these two examples, swearing not to sleep for three days and swearing not to, swearing not to eat for seven consecutive days. So the Ramam Kuli thinks that swearing not to sleep and swearing not to eat are the same thing. And why is that if, as the Ram already explained, they're very different? Okay, this is astounding. Because you really shouldn't compare them, as I explained. Okay, so the Ram says, what seems to me correct is, Shadin Din Emet, the Ramam is right that in the end, if you swear not to eat 30, not to eat for thirty days or for a week, that we whip you immediately and we right and you can eat immediately. The I don't agree with the Ramam's reasoning. The reason that that oath does that oath is an oath from the beginning is not because it's impossible, because it's not impossible. It's because if you swear not to eat for thirty days, then you have taken an oath to violate the Torah. Why? Because you took an oath to commit suicide. And that's why it's a Shavuot Shav. So now he says, hang on a sec, but we do have, we do say that, um, that if you take an oath to, um, to harm yourself, not to kill yourself, the Shavuot is Chal on you, um, and whatever, the result, whatever the results are, because it's not an explicit biblical result, that's not our issue right now. Nonetheless, swearing to kill yourself, that is a violation of the Torah. And he says, why? Because that's not just a drasha. That's explicit in the Torah. The Torah says, Or the Torah says, And therefore, since from the very the time you take your oath, you're taking an oath to violate the Torah, that's why it's an elodi. Okay, why does all this matter to us? So now we're back in our Zalman He says, The Ran makes it clear here, that if you deprive food, a person of food, as for example yourself, you t- right, you deprive yourself of food by taking an oath not not to eat for for thirty days, um, it's considered murder. So if that's the case, hang on a sec. The Ramah said that it's not an act of murder if you remove something that is preventing someone from dying, but isn't isn't that exactly the same case as preventing someone from having food? So how could the how can the Ramah say? That being Mesir Monea um, is 
perfectly legitimate when, um, right, when the Ron clearly says that causing someone to die of starvation is murder. Okay. Now, I just point out this is an invented question uh, because uh, probably, oh, sorry, sorry, he has a, Rav Zalman has a little bit of a separate issue, which he, he wonders, like, the Ron thinks he can prove it from these Sukkim, but he's not proving anything from these Sukkim. These Sukkim are talking about actual murder, and the Ron, right, we're trying to talk about murder by, by being removed of Manea, right? That, that, that's not really a good question at all. Fine. Not our issue. I should have taken out that, uh, that section. What matters to us right now for Rav Zalman Nechemia is on the one hand, it seems that Ramah thinks that if you're Mesir Amonea, you haven't done anything. And therefore, it's perfectly legitimate. It's not murder. It's not anything. Anytime we define something as removal of a prevention, then no halachic weight can attach to it at all. But he has two problems with that. Uh, one is, it seems morally untenable because in that case, you can bring about the death of a healthy person um, and there would be no, there'd be, there'd be no violation at all. And secondly, it says it seems to him against this run because this run says explicitly that, um, that causing someone to starve to death by denying yourself food, causing yourself to die to death, but he assumes the same is true of third parties, uh, even though that seems to him, obviously you're just removing an obstruction to death, right? The food is just an obstruction to death. It seems to him that, that, is, um, that that's an example of being Messier Monea that is nonetheless uh, obvious, uh, nonetheless liable for murder. So in order to resolve this contradiction between the Ran and the, and the Ramah, and also to try and find a way to explain the Ramah, so the Ramah can say that Mesir Monea, removing a prevention, is not an action at all, and nonetheless, the Ramah will not end up allowing you to kill anyone other than a Goses by, any mean, right, by this means. So he has to try and come up with a way in which the case in the Ramah is unique. So he comes up with two different paths. The first one is the one that is uh, the most radical. He says, Ad kan loch, right, so we should, the category that Razal Menachemia is using to describe, right, he says, well, there's active murder. That's category A. And then there's Mesir Monea, removing intervention, that's category C. And in between them, is the category called grama, gram ritzicha, right? In between them is the, um, in between them is the, um, cate- is the, cat- is the, um, is causing death by indirection, which he calls murder by, in- which he calls murder by, in- um, by indirection. So he wa- what he wants to do is come up with a way in which all the cases that bother us morally, including causing someone to starve, are, Examples of Ritzicha Bigrama, they're right, indirectly caused murder, whereas the case of the Ramah is, right, is simply removal of, of a prevention. So here's his first attempt. He says, Adkan Lochashiv Grama, it's only called a Grama of Ritzicha as opposed to non-action. Ela Shebiglal Pulato Nifal Davar Acherumemiso. It's only called a Grama if, as a result of your action, something else comes into play and kills him. For example, if you tie someone up in front of a hungry lion, so then because you tied him up, now the lion can kill him. But he says, if you remove something, if you remove something that is capable of saving a person, for example, if you burn his food, or you spill his medication, in all those cases, 
It's not that your action triggers something else that will kill him or empowers something else to kill him. He dies of his own weaknesses. He doesn't eat. It's just that if it weren't for his actions, um, he could, right, your actions, he could have been saved. That's not called even a grama. Okay? That's his first assumption, right? That if, if your action empowers some kind of other force to kill him, then that's Ritzicha Bigrama. But if your action just leaves him in a position where he dies of himself, it's just that the opportunity to save him um, has, right, you've deprived, you've deprived of to save, that's not Gram Ritzicha. We'll see in a moment that what, of course, it is, is a, a violation of your, uh, right, a violation of your obligation to save. But it's not murder. So Rav Zalman is really, right, his move is to say that there is a, there is a clear line between failing to save and killing. And removing, causing someone to starve to death, um, right, by burning their food, is failing to save them, not killing them. Okay? Um, so, what about, so what about the Ron now? Does that really help him solve the Ron? The Ron says that if you, swear, if you swear not to eat, that you're considered to be murdering yourself. So here he says, Umasha Kosavaran, Efshar, when the when the when the oh, sorry when the Ron said that you're violating the Torah when you take this oath, he doesn't mean you violate the Torah by murdering. He means you're violating the the obligation to save yourself. And similarly, if you spill somebody's medication, what you're doing is you're violating the the prohibition against not saving. Right? There are lots of there the triple negative here. Right? You're you are not not you are not 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 saving him. All uh, right, but it's very important for Zalman Chaim Goldberg to distinguish between what's considered to be called ritzicha bigrama, right, murder, uh, murder by in with by indirectization, and failure to save. Okay, and the same is true of yourself. And it says now he says that doesn't sound like a good shot because Ramah quotes a pasuk which says which is talking about murder or at least bloodshedding, not talking about saving. What he means to say is, don't think that there's no obligation to save yourself because the obligation to save applies to everyone whom there's a prohibition against murdering. And so now that you know that there's a prohibition against suicide, you'll also get that there's, a pro- that there's an obligation to save yourself. Okay. So now, Rizal has worked very hard. And yeah, honestly, you know, that obviously was not a terribly convincing move to say that when the Ramah quotes the Pasuk, when the Ramah says that you violate the Pasuk of Aptim Chemlan Afshosechem Edrosh, He's only using that pasuk to prove that there's an obligation to save yourself, and that's really what you're violating. But having gone to all that point, now he now he gets to his right. He closes his intellectual trap. He says lofi kol zenomar. According to this, what we'll say is shadin hatzala lo neemar alagoses. The obligation to save does not apply to agoses. Even though remember we started by quoting the Shulchan Aruch, everyone agrees that it's murder to kill agoses. But Rizal Nechemi says, it's mur- yeah, you're not allowed to kill a gosis, but that doesn't mean you have an obligation to save a gosis. Now he has a problem with this. But the truth is that we're Mechal Shabbos, even for people who can only live for five, right, for five minutes. Right? We, right, um, right? So we know that there is an obligation to save people who only have five minutes to live, 
because otherwise, how could we be violate? How could we violate Shabbat to save them? And the Shulchan Aruch says explicitly, Even if you you're right, the classic case of violating Shabbat is a building collapses on somebody and you're digging them out. So you're digging them out of the building and you find them completely shattered. You know he's going to die momentarily. You're still allowed to keep on violating Shabbat to dig him out uh, because that will enable him to live longer. So how could that possibly, how could that possibly be? So the, um, nonetheless, right, he says that that's, for him that's going to be different than a gose. So we'll have to figure out why that, why that is. Okay, so he says, here's his solution. So how do we solve the problem that on the one hand, he, or he asserts that by a gosais, there's no obligation to save them, and yet the Shulchan Aruch says we violate Shabbat to dig someone out who has only five seconds to live. So he says, the rule that you have to save people only applies when you benefit them by saving them. In such a case, there's a rule, there's an obligation to save. And you can violate Shabbat for this. But if it's better for them to die than live because of Yisurim, okay, but if you're, if you're in a situation where death is better than life, so even though there's still a prohibition against killing you, there's no longer an obligation to save you. Okay, so now we can look and say, let's put these, let's think about putting these two things together. So if you want to, if you want to find a way in which it's permissible to engage in an action that has the result of somebody else dying, possibly even yourself, so you need two conditions. On the one hand, it can't be defined as an action of killing. Okay, so he says, if you define it as mesir monea, meaning that all you're doing is removing an, an obstacle to something within themselves killing them. So then it's not murder. Now you're only left with an obligation to save. Well, the obligation to save only applies, it, all right, only applies if, um, if living is, for them is better than dying. So if you, if you say that the gosais the Ramah is talking about is a gosais for whom there is no longer any benefit in living, so it ends up the Ramah says it's permitted to do this because it's not Ritzicha and there's no obligation to save them. Okay. Now I'm going to switch and we should take a look and read the question of Zalman Chemi uh, is, um, is trying to get us to address. Okay, so here's the, here's the question in the articles you already published. You'll see it's a very complicated question, but now you'll start seeing where we're going. It says, Bevet Cholim Misuyam in a particular hospital, Kara, the following event occurred. There's a woman who's very sick. And there was no hope of curing her. So they kept her alive. They connected her to um, an artificial lung. Now, I think that um, Ari raised this question last time. I think an artificial lung is different than a ventilator. And we'll see that may matter later. Um, I think an artificial lung is something that um, that pumps your lungs as opposed to something that forces air independently into, uh, I see Jerry nodding, so good, right, into your lungs. So we'll see that may make a difference late, later. In the hospital is only one such 
um, such such machine. Ve'osozman at the same time nifsadam ba'ofen anush biotera party B right. So there's this woman. She's very sick. She's going to die, and she's on this artificial lung, which is keeping her alive for the moment, but there's no hope of cure. At the same time, another man is carried in, right, who's injured very severely. And he also has no hope of being kept alive. Amnam, however, So remember, 1975, there are not live kidney donors yet, I don't think. They're only dead kid. Um, only dead kidney donors, and so the, this man who's been injured in an accident and has also no hope of living, we want to use him as a kidney donor, but we only want to use him a kid, as a kidney donor after he dies, um, and to, right, since it's going to take time to prep everything, so we want to keep him alive until the last possible moment. Uh, right. So the only way to keep him alive long enough to keep his kidney viable is to attach him to this. Uh, right to this artificial lung. So now the question comes up, right? As he was a very elaborate question. Can you take the artificial lung away from the dying woman, since she has no hope of living, and connect it to this other man who also has no hope of living, but because by moving it from patient A to patient B, you have a much greater hope of, of you have a, a better chance of saving patient C, and patient C may live a, long, may live a normal lifespan. All right, so that's the question that Rav Zalman Nehemiah is, um, is, is addressing. And as I say, I think it's an artificial question. And so he wrote the question so that he could write an, ans- write an answer that would at least in some way be yes. So everything we've been doing so far is moving towards trying to find a way to enable you to remove this artificial lung from the woman and give it to the, to the first man so that you can keep him alive long enough to take his kidney out and give it to the second man. So now let's review where we are. So Zalman Chemia says, if we want, right, so if you remove the, if you remove the, um, the artificial lung from the woman, she's going to die faster than she would have otherwise. That's a given. So in order to allow this, he thinks, we have to find, right, we have to construct a way in which we can engage in an action which will cause somebody to die faster than they otherwise would have, and that's perfectly okay. So what he says is, Okay, here we have process one. Process, right, process one of doing this is, what we're going to say is that all you're doing when you remove the iron lung, when you remove the, the artificial lung, is you are preventing them, you're removing the thing that is preventing them from dying of asphyxiation. You're not killing them. You're not, caught, you're not bringing into being something with the capacity to kill them. All you're doing is saying, okay, we're leaving you as you were. So that's so it's not murder. Now you'll tell me, okay, but don't you have an obligation to save her? Well, the answer is no, because she's dying. And if we think that if we think that her that her survival does not benefit her in any way, and we'll have to figure out what the standard is for saying that it won't, right? But if if we could say that this woman's death is better than her life, so there's no obligation to save her, and now we can with clear conscience remove the ventilator from her. Okay, so now we have to, right? So that's, that's approach number one that Rav Zalman Nechemi is going to take, right? That, we, that there are two prongs in order, right? To, in order to get to the Ramah's conclusion, you need two prongs. One is you need, right? The, and this is the, the, the key original move, uh, the, the intellectually creative move is to say that 
you, um, it's only considered murder as opposed to a failure to save if as a result of the removal, some other force, some other external force becomes able to kill you, becomes able to kill you. And pretty radically, it sounds like what he's saying is that if you're already sick, right, since he compares this to the case of scattering medications, if you're already sick, then prevention of a cure, right, prevention of the appropriate medicine is not considered murder. It's just a failure to save. And then he says, okay, so you still have an obligation to save. Then his second move is to claim that there's no obligation to save somebody who's, right, whose death is better than life. In order to accomplish this, he has to do something resembling violence to a number of his primary texts. Uh, I think he has to claim that the Ron, when he quotes the Pasuk uh, about suicide, is really just quoting that to prove that there's an obligation to save. And he has to claim that the Ramah um, is only talking about a, right, um, is talking about a case where, uh, where death is obviously better than life. That may be true, but I think his definition will be overbroad. But okay, here we got here. Then he has a second approach, which is a much more conventional approach for now. He says, There's another way of distinguishing. Right, that, that preventing someone from having food is different. Because food keeps somebody alive in a natural way. Okay, right? Food is a natural, is a natural uh, service. Uh, okay? Whereas, and therefore, somebody who prevents um, you from eating is always considered a grumma's, right? So that's so the reason that the, there's no way in which preventing someone from having food is ever going to not be murder, and that's fine, because the Ron's talking about preventing someone from having food, so that's murder, and the Ramah is not talking about that. You're not preventing the, the Gosei's from eating, you're just removing something that is preventing him from dying. Right? It's not the, the, it's the, um, the hammer pounding of the woodchopper is not, I don't know what the ha- what, why he thinks it's a hammer with a woodchopper, but okay. Right? The, um, that's not keeping the person alive. It's just preventing them from dying. But it has, it, right, it has the power, whether by supernatural means or by natural means, to prevent death. But it's not a source of life. And therefore, removing it is not murder no matter what. It's just Mesir Devarham Akev. It's just something that is just something that is preventing death. Okay, that's going to be a much harder analogy to a, to a um, to a respirator because breathing presumably is as natural as eating. So we'll have to see, right? So this is good. This is a less attractive option if your goal is to allow removing the respirator from the woman. But we'll see. The Rizal Menachemia gets there um, gets there as well. He'll also answer Ari's question uh, right about the possibility of tshuva. Okay, so here he plays. Right, so here he's going to play it out further. He says, "Now, according to the run that I, the, what I wrote in the run, right, um, approach uh, approach number one, he says, Imkain lefiha mutuar b'sheilazot nireh sheishahi b'matzav shetov mutav b'chayah." It seems to mutav b'chayah. It seems to me that this woman is in a condition where death is better than life. Okay, um, I think that his standard that he has a first standard, which is a um, which is a, I think, a very reasonable standard halakhically. We'll, we'll talk about it if I go on whether I adopt it, but it's a reasonable standard, that death is better than life if, at least if the two following conditions are met. One, there's no possibility of resuming consciousness, and B, there's pain. It might be that the first condition is enough, that if there's no possibility of resuming consciousness, 
that death is the right that we always see death is better than life. But it's certainly the case, Rizal Menachemi assumes, that if there is both no possibility of resuming consciousness, and therefore he assumes no possibility of doing tshuva, we're going to leave aside the question of what your unconscious does. Uh, and there is pain, so he assumes that death is better than life. So therefore he says, Imkain, mutar lasia mania shalamavet, therefore you can remove the obstruction to death, mutar lafsikit and you could remove the artificial lungs. But then he goes one step. Right, he goes one step further in a way which you'll see, based on the prior shurim, is going to make me very nervous. And he says, and by the way, look, she's female, and the other guy is male, and we right. So once we've reduced this to a chiyav hatzala, right? So right. So men, you have to save men before women. Okay. Now I honestly think that he wrote the case with a. Um, he wrote the. He wrote the case um, so that he could put this one line in. Right? It was just a clever thing. And he probably 20 years later, he regrets it. <laughs> he regretted it. But he threw that line in because it, it's just a throwaway line. Then he says, ah, you know what? The same thing would be true in reverse. The same thing would be true in reverse. Because it makes sense to him that if you can save, if you have a man and a woman, but the woman's, you can only save the woman briefly, but you can save the man for Chayesha, it seems, it seems clear that, you, that it's better to save the woman for, sorry, you can save the woman forever, right, for normal lifespan, but the man only briefly, it's obvious to him that even according to the missionaries, you should save the woman before the man. Again, I think this is an artificial case, and, you know, this was a line thrown in to be clever, and um, it, 35 years later, we're not so into, uh, right, we might not be so into the same cleverness. Okay, um, somebody asked, uh, what is pain without awareness? That's a great question, all right? You know, what does it mean to have somebody, uh, right? So the medical people will tell you that they're, that the body reacts in a way which, um, which, if the patient were conscious, we would see as discomfort. Right, uh, right, uh, right. I think that's the including moaning, including right, moaning. Yeah. Moan, yeah, something, something, right, something like that. You know, that's always been a, a challenge. You know, and there's a difference if you're if the patient is just sleeping, right? Because there are things, right? You react to things, right? You're 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 genuinely reacting to an environment. If you really think, you know. Brain dead patients, right? Is you know, is right? Is the extreme case, right? It, right? Bodies react in ways that uh, may not reflect consciousness. So this is right. This is a very deep challenge. We're going to leave it for now because it's beyond our scope today. Okay. So Razan Nechemi has his first approach for allowing us to to right to remove a patient from a respirator for the benefit of another patient. What you have to do is say that um, that right. Take take the approach that if the if the removal in no way empowers the thing that is killing you, um, right, then it's not murder, it's just failure to save. And then within failure to save, he has two ways out. One is, all right, one is that you can, um, well, his main way out is, is you can, right, is you, can, you have no obligation to save somebody whose death is better than their life. That's where he is. That's where he is um, right now. Because his second criteria, uh, I guess his second criteria is, uh, let's leave, let's hold the second criteria for now. Let's leave it at this for now. Okay. Now he has a sec. Now he has a um, he has a second a second way out. Practically, he says, you know what? It's also true that um, the kind of in the 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 mechanical lungs that they were that they were addressing that they were addressing, there were times that you had to t- you had to stop the machine to change something, uh, right? Some something in it, right? He calls it uh, sorry here a sinor hanylon. 
um, like a nylon filter, I guess, another place he claims this has some other material. But apparently there's some kind of um, some kind of temporary, right, some kind of replaceable part in the machine. And so there's going to come a time at which you're going to have to disconnect the machine anyway. So he says it seems to him that because he just established that when you have a choice between short-term life and long-term life, you can choose long-term life over short-term life. So therefore, he says, once you've stopped the machine, maybe you have no obligation to restart it. Just because it's connected to patient A, does, right? if it's not currently functioning, and maybe you even, right? So as long as you turned it off for the moment, now you can move it. Okay, that's an interesting move. Um, okay, that, um, but he says, but if you actually have to turn it off, or right, um, then that depends. And it's a new design. This is another radically creative move. He says, if she's going to be able to live a little bit after the machine, she's going to die faster, but she's not going to die right away, then it's okay. Because, right, because then you're not killing her by removing it. You're just failing to save her. And as long as we say that you're just... Um, you're just failing to save her, then we're fine, right? Because you can choose to save him, to save him, and really the third party over her. But he says, But if she's going to die immediately as soon as the machine is turned off, it seems to me that it's usher, right? So long as, because if she dies immediately, then you can't call it, you can't call it just a miniyas hatzela. If she dies immediately, that goes too far. That's obviously murder, even if logically it's just mesir hamoneya. Okay, and he says, if you, on this logic, you have to do an, another text, you have to has to be turned into a pretzel. When the Ramaz says that you're allowed to remove the salt or the wood, peck, or the wood chopper, that, or at least the salt, that only means if they're not going to die immediately. But if they'll die immediately as you remove the salt, then you can't remove it. Okay, the Ramaz never said anything like that. We're going we're gonna to add that in as well. Okay, so now he has two ways. One is, one, one is that um, one, one, we had our first approach, which is that maybe we can just turn the machine off because um, it, it, uh, it's, turning the machine off is not is not murder at all. Secondly, we can wait till it turns off, and um, thirdly, maybe we can move it as long as she doesn't die immediately. But that's according to his first approach. But he says according to the second approach, which says that it's called murder by grama if you if you if you um, deny food or air. So then it's obvious that you can never um, remove the machine. Um, right, it's not, right. All you can do is wait for the machine to turn off. Okay. So if we had ended at this point. Rav Zalman Chemi would have a um, would have a very um, would have a very you know a stra- you know we have two approaches one approach which is this amazingly creative approach which is that it's not murder it, it's not murder unless you um, unless you do something that causes a new force to come into play okay so that right that way you can actually turn the machine off but he says you know there's another Another way of doing it, which is to say the differences between natural death and unnat, um, right, and unnatural death, and in that case, you can't turn the machine off. But now he comes up with another jump. He says, "I'm not nearly." It seems I have not. I have another approach. He says, "Shekolze begoses she'en lo machala." All this is only true if the person is goses because they're just old, and their life is coming to an end. That's right. All the the limitations I've supposed are all about that. But if the reason the woman is connected to the machine is not because she's very old, but because she's sick. And she's sick to the point that she can't die, 
that she can't die with that she'll die within a year. So then she comes right, then she's considered a trefa. So here, Rav Nechemi comes up with what I think is yet the wildest, um, with yet the wildest way of um, of approaching this. What he says is that the halacha is that killing a trefa is not ritzicha. Right? We saw right killing a trefa is right is not ritzicha. You don't get the death penalty for killing a trefa. He moves from that to claiming. Right now, I, I argued last time, and I think that this is um, correct, that killing a trefa is still a violation of shvichut damim. It's not just a failure to save. But he says, no, killing a trefa is not ritzicha. There is an obligation to save a trefa. There's no prohibition against killing a trefa. Then he says, our definition of trefa isn't the formal definition of the trefa is somebody who has a puncture in a vital organ such that they'll die within 12 months. Anybody who has a medical condition other than old age, which will kill them within 12 months, is a trefa. And then he says, aha, well, since, there's, there's the, since by a trefa the only issue is whether, the only obligation is to save them, and whenever it comes to saving, you can have a, um, you are allowed to choose long-term life over short-term life. So it turns out that we can take this woman off the machine because she's a trefa. And there's no problem moving a machine from a trefa to somebody else. So in the end, Rizal Menachemia says, here's his, here's his summary, and I guess we're not going to get to uh, Rabbi Halpern today, even though I didn't take questions. Right. A hubris again in thinking how much we'll get through. Uh, if the woman certainly can't live 12 months because she is sick, as opposed to simply because she's weak, then you can, no matter what, you can just remove the machine from her because she's a trefa. And if she's a trefa, then there's only an obligation to save, and you can do long-term life over short-term life. And um, right, it, right, it'd be better though, he says, if you could try and find a way to remove it in a way that she won't die immediately. Okay, but if you can't, you can't. If she has right, if she does have the possibility to live for 12 months, or if she can't live for 12 months, the only reason is because she's weak from old age, then yeah, right, then if her if death is better than life then you can't, you certainly don't have to right, make any effort to keep her alive. And he says, and if, and if she's going to die immediately if you take the respirator off, then you, can, right, then you can't do it. But if, she live, but if she'll live for a moment, or if she'll live for whatever, she won't die immediately after removal of the respirator, then it depends. Right? If, you've, if you take the approach of the Ramah that, it, that, uh, breathe, that cutting off breathing is murder, then you can't do it. But if you take the first approach, he says, the Ramah, which is that um, which is that it just depends whether it's another force, then you should be allowed to remove her from the machine as well. All right, that's Rizal Menachemia's um, approach, which I think it's fair to, you know, I, I debated whether to call it his radically, his radically innovative approach, his boldly creative approach. Rizal Menachemia concludes that there are many cases in which you can detach a patient from, he's talking about a lung, but for, but for our purposes right now, it's not going to make a difference between a lung and a, a ventilator, right? You can remove the ventilator, remove it to another patient if a, uh, right, if, if, at least he says for sure, if the patient you're removing it from is going to die of illness within 12 months and they won't die immediately after removal from the ventilator, then you can, then you can certainly remove it. And um, maybe, 
If you take his first approach, you can always remove it as long as, um, even if they're going to die immediately um, for the sake of another patient. In order to get there, um, he, right, he, what he does is he assumes that you're allowed, that there is no, uh, there is no prohibition against killing a trefa. There's only a prohibition against, um, against failing to save a trefa. And essentially, right, you know, he sets up a whole system, right? He says that there are lots of people for whom it's better to die than live. And right, right, like certainly ghost him is better to die than live. And those patients, you don't, you have no obligation to save at all. So he puts in all these judgments, which I would say, uh, you know, begin to say that some lives are more valuable than others. Uh, but he yields this, and he yields this result. The result is that you can move ventilators from one from one um, patient to another. This is the approach I would say, I should say that is uh, being advocated. I think it's fair to say by Rabbi Jason Weiner. Uh, Senior Sinai Hospital, and this is the, the the fundamental premise of the proposed halachic emergency protocol that he has uh, that, that he has put out. We'll see that I uh, hope um, next week. Um, and that's it. I'll I'll turn it over to you, uh, as opposed to right, we don't have time to Rabbi Helprin's approach. What do you think of um, what do you think of this approach? Uh, right. I know there were a bunch of questions on the chat. Uh, I'm gonna I'm going to stop the share now and just take questions. Okay, Jerry. What do you want to say? Uh, many things, but uh, in this tshuva, he, he really doesn't mention the person who will be saved ultimately. It doesn't seem to be contingent on another person's life being saved. He's talking about whether you can kill a particular person. He doesn't mention that we're going to save someone else's life. Well, let's be, let's be clear. When he talks about tov motov mechayeha, that's right. right? And his yeah. logic, right? That, that approach, yes. But... His, um, and the trefa, uh, all of them seem to be just no, no. So I want to be the trefa. Okay, well, but the trefa that's not so. But the trefa he says is you have an obligation ordinarily to save a trefa, but he says as long as you reduce the problem to an obligation to save, now I'm allowed to, in the obligation to save, I'm allowed to make choices. But right? he that's, doesn't say that, does he say that? Yeah, he does say that. Right? Okay. You choose right. Olam over okay. Uh, the, the, my, I just want to comment. Yeah. that uh, this, this tshuva is in violation of Kant's uh, categorical imperative not to treat a human as a, as a means to an end. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess the only other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, my understanding of the Gosses and Maesir Monea is that somehow, and this is metaphysical, the soul wants to die. And these are stimulations. These are things on the tongue that stimulate the person, sort of shaking him or the chopping of the wood, or the, or the servant who breaks the pot. These are all things that are stimulations that distract the person from the, this natural process that's taking place. Um, that's my understanding. It's sort of metaphysical. I don't know how you do a test of this, but uh, that's how I see it. Okay, so let's, um, the first one, so you know, as I said in the previous shurim, I think that the best way to understand Sanhedrin is like Kant. Right, that you know, that you, right, all lives, all right, all lives are ontologically equal because, and all therefore, all lives, <clears throat> and all all lives have to be means. Right, you have to use them as as ends rather than means. I think that's absolutely right. So what I'm presenting is that here you have, you know, I'm I'm claiming this is what I want to be the halacha, and that's what I, right what I'm going to argue is the halacha. But I have to be honest, Rav Zalman Nechemi doesn't agree. Um, right, and he inter and I I have a sympathy with your reading of the Rama, although I read it somewhat differently, but he doesn't read the Rama that way. So now yeah, here's the question. Right. All right, here's the question, though. 
what is going on now in the hospitals with all the uh, what the you know what, what the doctors tell me, right? All the protocols. Um, the the question that is facing everybody is the or, that at least it was assumed. Maybe it's not true anymore. It was assumed that if you did not allow moving ventilators from one patient to another, one of two things would inevitably happen. Either there would be a significant number of patients who would arrive at the hospital with a with a with a with a small but non but not but but small but finite chance of surviving by a ventilator, and the hospital would refuse to connect them, because once you connect it, then you would not be able to uh, right to to detach it. That is that is the question that was asked from South Africa, as we'll see we'll see next time. Or alternatively, you would connect them and then not be able to remove them, and then a lot more people would die than otherwise. So the challenge that people that people asked me right as a halachist is. Is it right? Your principles may be beautiful, but you really want to hold to your principle, your Kantian principles, right? The, the challenge to Kant always is that it ends right because he's completely deontological and he has no con- he doesn't consider consequences. So you end up right, you know, classically right, giving the gun back to the person right who right who lent right who lent it to you, right? So the challenge to me was: Do you really want to end up with the halacha? Is it really possible to say that what God wants is for lots more people to die because you have this firm principle? So, right, and so and the argument is if the only way you can get to the result um, Rav Zalman Nehemia uh, reaches, in our case, is by jettisoning your principles, so I'd rather have his result than your principles. So the challenge of this, now there's a second approach, right, which is to say, you know, we're not going to take responsibility for this. So we'll see. Rav Asher Weiss, right, and Rav Shechter both say that both do everything they can to try and get the halacha to match what the medical protocols want. And in the end, they say, you know what? And if you, the ventilator has to be removed, so then you recuse yourself and let someone else do it. So that lets the doctors keep working, but fundamentally, you know, sort of, it's sort of an abdication, I guess, of moral responsibility for what's happening. So the challenge for me all right, is I could say, that I'm willing to live with the consequence. Or alternatively, I can say, it seems to me I have two things that have to be true. One is this moral principle has to be true. Now, on the other hand, it can't yield this result. And the question is, is there a way to both have my cake eat it too? To have my, my, my semi-Kantian principle and still get the result that under certain kinds of circumstances, such as those that, would have, that were thought to prevail in COVID-19 cases um, at the, right, at the out, outside of the pandemic, it would still be permissible. Okay, so that's what, um, that's what I'm going for. And that's what I think I can, uh, what I hope I'll be able to pull off over the next several weeks. Okay, uh, thank you. Okay, yes, next. What, 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 just one other thing. Yeah. Can, we, can we change the time for the next year? I can't make Tuesdays at 12. Uh, I'll have to look at it. Either the day or the hour. I don't have a, um, well, next week, pro- I, have to, I, have, I haven't figured out next week's schedule. I'll take it under advisement. Okay. I don't know because I don't have a, I don't have a way of doing a poll over who else, who else it works for and who else it doesn't work for. Okay. I will think, what, do, what does work for you? Any other day except Tuesday, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday don't work at noon. Do they work at some other time? Midday? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. M- Monday and Tuesday don't work at noon. Wednesday, right. Thursday, Friday works at noon. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll correspond. Okay. Okay, uh, other questions? So, oh, yeah. maybe if you want to go back to your original uh, plan, that the criteria the, the, the criteria should be that there's a, a 
principle of svara that's underlying all the issues that have to do with death and one per killing one person or person dying over another. And your the suggestions you made were like that they have to be universal, they have to be uh, intelligible to people, they have to be non-discriminatory, whatever. That and maybe you should think about giving up Kant his view and going to a, a Rawls type view. for Shalom. <laughs> Who said that? Jerry. Jerry. Uh, what well, do you mean by Rawls? Yes. Well, because this is an this is an attempt to give you a method for producing a, a moral or ethical or political or legal not not legal but standpoint based on an argument I, I, you're familiar I don't know if you're familiar with Rawls it's been many years since I read it but yeah roughly speaking the idea is that you imagine yourself in some situation the where you're you're given a society and situations but you don't know who you are and you have to produce rules that everyone would agree to no matter what their circumstances were so in that case this is a this is going to push you to a consequentialist um, conclusion rather than a, a kantian one and it's, that's totally deontological yeah, because that's a great. That's a you know, that's a great challenge. Uh, I think it's very, very hard to fit that into the language of the Gemara. No, uh, yes. So I, I was not. I, 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 I was saying that if you had already understood the Gemara as saying that the requirements were that you had a rational principle that dictated how you that you should behave according to rational, commonly accepted principles, then. You have a choice as to what you, you, there has to be some consensus as to what how you dis, what those principles are. Uh -huh. So I think you're right that when you know that if I was starting, if I were starting with you know from nowhere, right? I'm just trying to figure out what the best principle is. So then I get into the same debates as moral philosophy generally, and Kant's one approach and Rawls is another approach. Um, but if I'm starting from the Gemara, it seems to be very hard to read Rawls into the Gemara. And very easy to read content of the Gemara. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't see that exactly. Who says your uh, blood is greater than his? Exactly. You have to assume that every person is equivalent, is in the same position. You don't know. You can't judge what position you're in. You can't judge who's. You have to have a principle which says, ah, all people have to be viewed have to decide on the basis as if they were interviewed of anyone else. Okay. I, don't, I don't think it's that you're, that that's so much more difficult to view it that way than to say that somehow all people are equal when we know they're not equal. Um, okay, so I should say that probably this is too good a question for me to answer offhand. No, I, I'm- it's, I, need to think about, I need to think about it. I think uh, it's more radical than, I mean, it, it's not, you have to be more radical in your plan of giving up it being a purely halachic situation. You have to say that the halacha is based on some pre-existing morality or rationality, and then you have to interpret it somehow to fit that view. How you choose that view is 
as you say, and how that choice is guided by the later halachic decisions is not obvious. Yeah, so I have to think about it. Yeah, my instincts are I don't want to give up that much. Um, I, I do want, you know, I do think it's better to read the Gemara, and I think that what I'm doing is a very good translation of Rav Chaim into philosophic terms. I don't think I can translate Rav Chaim into roles either, but I have to think about it because your challenge, the challenge is a good one. I have to think about whether that's true or not, or whether it's just that. Admittedly, my bias, I, I don't, I, I'm, I like Kant better than Rawls to start with. Uh, but that's you get very different outcomes if you're... Well, we'll have to see how, how right? Maybe. We'll have to see, right? Right now, we're assuming that the only way to get to Rav Zalman Nechemi's outcomes, or, right, is, is his way, and that he doesn't yield other outcomes that are worse. Right? It might be Rav Zalman Nechemi yields other... We already see the risk of outcomes that are worse. For example, that he puts the Gemara and Horios back in, <clears throat> right, which, which I think is an unfortunate result, and so it may be, it may be that Rizalman Nehemiah's that the, that the price we have to pay to get to this result is too great, and there's another way it will enable us to get to the same result without paying that price. Well, the the arguments today is how Rizalman Nehemiah's arguments seem to me to be very weak. I agree with you. Uh, I so... agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, many points so so did Rabbi Halperin as we'll see next week um yeah so it's gonna have to take you know it's gonna it's I would I would say you know that you know that that if we're done and I have something to say you'll be certainly justified in talking about Rabbi Clapper's boldly creative and innovative <laughs> uh, approach because I'm gonna have to go because you know cause, yeah because I at the end of what I'm saying is that you know that where I would like to end up is is something like Rizal Menachemia's results in this case while sticking to my principles and right and no and Really, not too many other people have gotten there, and the other people who have gotten there scare me. So, right? so but, but, I, you know, but I don't want to answer that yet until we've gone through. I don't want to present my position before we've gone through Rav Sisiliezer and Shlomo Zalman, at least. Okay. Rabbi, <coughs> yes, John. One of the questions I have is <coughs> there was the, if you take the woman out the investment. They said if she has 12 months to live, um, who makes that judgment? No one knows if she has uh, two weeks or 12 months. Um, that's completely arbitrary, I think. Well, that, that's a great question. Um, the, uh, as what degree of, I mean, all these issues where we make judgments halakhically based on projected lifespan or diagnosis prognosis yeah, like who, who made it one year uh, you know it's completely arbitrary and so the one yeah no one knows how long you're going to live so you can't make that judgment and you always have that know what the definition of old is you know people live they're over 100, old is relative as well. So I think there are three separate issues. One is, you're right, I mean, everybody rejects old age per se as a, as a criteria. The question is, is life expectancy given the, progno given the specific prognosis? Within that, there are two other questions. One is, where do we get 12 months from? Yeah. And secondly, what degree of confidence do we have uh, right. What or do we need to have in order to diagnose that? So the twelve yeah. months 
comes from the halakhic definition of trefa. But the confidence is a much more complicated question. Rav Asher Weiss, for example, as we'll see eventually, says that even though the halacha says 12 months, actually our, the real criteria is six months. Because he said what he's told by doctors is that predictions that you live less than six months have a very high probability of being true. There's a, they write the, like, well, the interval of confidence is high. But once you get past six months, it's basically, they're basically guessing. Yeah. So Rav Asher Weiss says he'll, he, he, won't, he, won't, he won't allow the category of trefa to apply to anybody who is diagnosed as having more than six months to live because he thinks that's not a high enough confidence. I don't have any, enough knowledge myself as yeah. to what kind of confidence it's we would need. Too arbitrary. Okay, I'm with you. I think that's a, that's a good critique. And as Rav Asher Weiss accepted that critique, he thought not for six months. I, you know, I'd have to talk to, to many more doctors before, you know, I think all of us have experience, thank God, of people who were told medically there's no chance that they're going to live more than X and ended up living. Yeah, I mean, uh, they told my parents I never want to talk or go to school. And, yeah, so you... You can't trust the professionals. So you have very good autobiographical reasons to be skeptical. Yeah. I agree with you. That's a real, that's, that, that I think is one of the, one of the reasons that I prefer Kant is that you know, using that 12 month criteria, it seems to me is essentially claiming that short, that life for a year is less valuable than life for two years. And I don't really, I'd rather avoid that. Yeah. Okay. Good to hear your voice. Ari, you want to ask something? Yeah. Well, just actually on that point, um, could it be that, um, that the category of trefa, right, living more than 12 months, is a, that's the, that's like the theoretical Doraita category, right? Same, same way like with an animal, right? Uh, an animal is, is a trefa if it's going to die within 12 months, but Durabana, we have rules for deciding, you know, whether something is, uh, is considered a, a trefa or not. So if, if the doctors make a prediction about whether somebody's going to live more or less than 12 months, then that puts the person into a category of suffix, uh, Suffolk trefa, uh, right, uh, um, uh, and then you could you would then have to, you could then apply you know rules of uh, general rules of Suffolk. Well, so let's say trefa is a problematic category because you know let's say it's much more prompt, you know, there's much more halakhic literature by animals, and the Gemara yeah. has a debate whether trefas, a, a trefa is somebody who has a, a puncture in a particular organ, right, or a deformity in a particular organ, and the Gemara has a debate about whether all trefos necessarily die within a year or don't? And the Gemara concludes that all trefos necessarily die within a year. That's the Torah. All right, ain't trefachaya. But then the, um, then the Gemara says that, um, that, then the reality is, right, everyone started noticing already in the Middle Ages that trefos didn't die, animal trefos didn't die. So our halacha of trefos by animals is this, in this mystery category, right? We paskin that they die, but we know that they don't. So now you want to transfer that back to humans. That's right. Now, we have the luxury now of saying a trefa doesn't have a real category, but, it, but in the, if we had a criminal law system, if you really hold that a trefa, killing a trefa isn't murder. Right? So then what, how are you going to prove to somebody? Right? Right? We have to, right? We're going to go back to autopsying everybody, right? It's, it's a, uh, extending the category of trefa to a diagnosis as opposed to a, uh, as opposed to a specific condition 
of right of a puncture right of a, of a puncture in a vital organ that that means it's going to fail that seems to me a huge shift um a huge huge shift uh you know particularly since you're dealing often what you're dealing with is right it's not there's nothing you know you're dealing with conditions metastases and things like that where the organs haven't begun to fail at all you're just predicting that something is going to happen in the future to say that that's a trefa to my mind is an extraordinarily huge move uh, just extraordinary um and really what you're saying is uh you know so the, the move you meant to make halakhically is to say there's some evidence halakhically you can choose chayesha over chayeolam sorry you can choose chayeolam over chayesha right now we're going to say okay what's the definition of chayesha i would have thought chayesha meant let's say go say standard 72 hours no i'm going to move chayesha back to trefa right and now i'm going to move trefa i'm going to say right i'm going to, I'm going to, right, I'm going to say that it doesn't just mean trefa, it means anybody, right? You know, right, those are, right, th- that's, that's, that's just an enormous number of moves that uh, I don't know, you know, I have to think about with Dr. Shore's proposal, how Rawls would deal with it. Um, but I don't like the idea that a, year, that a year's worth of life is, it sounds to me what we're saying is that a year of life is worth less than, is worth less than 20 years of life. And I understand the quantitative argument, but once you say that, why can't you say that five years of life is worth than 20 years of life or 19 years of life? Right, you know, so the right. It doesn't seem to me to be true to the category trefa. It doesn't seem to me to be a good idea at all. Uh, but on the other hand, I have, you know, I haven't gotten to the results. Right, so Rizal uh, and did. Okay, and then with respect to um, you mentioned the scuba uh, argument. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, I think that's a little bit of a different case, right? In the case of a, of of scuba, there, there's an issue of reliance, right? You went into the water relying on the fact that you had air coming into you. So if somebody turns it off, you, uh, you, uh, they're removing something that, that, that you relied on in order to live. And so that, that, that should be murder, right? Whereas with a ventilator, there may be a little difference in terms of what we expect from, medical, from the medical care system. And you can maybe think about that. But if, if, if somebody dies, you don't necessarily expect that you're, uh, you're going to suddenly be put onto a, uh, onto a ventilator and that therefore you have to be kept on it in order to live. Um, uh, which is unlike the case of a, of a, of a, of a I'm not at all. A, you know, like you know, the interesting question of whether moral, you know, whether that kind of subjective relationship affects the underlying objective morality, um, right? That's you know, and B, I'm not sure it's true. You know, we, when you go to the hospital, you expect to be, right? You expect to be treated in accordance with everything they have, and you're on a ventilator, you expect to stay there. Well, it's also and, it's not. It's really, the, it's really the issue of reliance, right? You didn't go about your life relying on the fact that you're going to be ventilated, right? Because you never know if you're going to get put onto the ventilator or not, uh, um, right? In the case of a scuba diving, you only went into the water because you knew that you were going to have air pumped uh-huh. into you. Okay, I, have to, I don't want to, you know, the scuba diving case is not so relevant to us right now, so I don't want to, it doesn't work for me, but, you know, but it might, but I'll think about it, and you can also think about it, you can sharpen the intuition. Okay, and then also relating to so the the question that I asked by chat, so it it seems to me that a ventilator isn't really comparable to uh, eating, uh, because eating is sort of the natural way that people uh, survive. Having air forced into your lungs or having somebody use some sort of machine to make you breathe is not the normal way that that you breathe. So it's not like you're it's not like you're preventing somebody from doing something natural. Yeah. So and so when you know when the issue is just end of life issues as opposed to triage, so people keep on trying to make that you know distinction between uh, normal and extraordinary measures and things like right, and things like that. And so they try to make a introduce a sphera like that, that you know that 
that there's a difference between strangling somebody and right and turning right and turning off and turning off and turning and, and removing them from a ventilator even if you could find a way where you just strangled them passively right uh, right where there's a difference between putting somebody in a room you know, you know, with a slow, you know, in a hermetically sealed room with a slow oxygen, with a slow leak, right? So eventually no oxygen, right? you, you can construct the, construct the case. Uh, what's interesting to me is that Rashomon Nechemi doesn't, isn't interested in that at all. He has two possibilities and, that, that's, not, and that's neither of them. Uh-huh. Right? So that's an interesting possibility and we'll see lots of, right? But it's not his possibility. Okay. Okay. Uh, next question. Dov? That really you or yep that was a kid um if i if i may uh, sure. Go ahead. um um the i guess this is more of a methodological question since you're not using the Rav Zalman, uh direction but in his uh in his chuva what, what i asked in the chat was was where does he get this distinction between what uh is it going to benefit the person to live longer or is it not going to benefit the person to live longer it seems like he sort of pulled that out of nowhere like doesn't have a source text for that he doesn't have like any any basis for that distinction and it just it just seems to make sense to him i think we saw that also two sessions ago with the um the unloading the boat that's sinking you know what order should we unload the people again it seems like there was some oh well this is the this should be the halakha because that's the right way to do it without sort of a Okay, so that, that's a complicated question. Let me try and think of this of a good way to answer it. I could, you know, I could say, well, you know, he, he does it because the Ramos, it's clear from the Ramah that there are people, that the Ramah thinks there are people who are better off dead. Right? Because that's the whole point of the Ramah, right? I guess, right? Is the whole case of Gosei itself. The, the whole, the notion that you're allowed to, to that there's some cases, right? There, right. If you read the Ramah, the clear indication is we would rather these people died faster, but we have some sort of, right, we have some sort of constraints, probably not utilitarian, right? Probably not consequentialist restraints, right? But, but the ontological restraints, we can't do this. So our goal is to figure out a way to overcome our, right, our, our constraints and allow this person to die. So I could do it that way. Um, but that's not, that's probably not fair to him. Uh, because there are, there are a whole series of texts in the Gemara that make clear that there are people for whom death is better than life. And that there are circumstances under which you can take actions that, um, that uh, because you can prefer death, death is better than life. So in the article, in the full right, in the article, he quotes from Chlina ben Tradio, and I didn't quote it because I think that's always cheating because you can make that text mean whatever you want, uh, right? But he quotes it. He quotes Shaul, right? That's one of the classic cases, right? And he has a whole long analysis of Shaul. I don't think those are the best proofs, um, but I think there are lots of cases, uh, right? Very start with Rameir, right? You have Tov Me'od Zamavet, right? Um, you have the story of Rabbi Yossi and the woman, right? Who asked, who said, you know, who, who asked how, you know, who's lived longer than she wants, than she wants to. And um, Rabbi Yossi asked Rabbi Yossi how, she, how, he can, how she can die. And he tells her, stop going to Shul. Because she's living, she's living in the merit of her going to shul, so she stops going to shul and she dies. There's a town called Kushta, where uh, right, no, a town, a town called sorry Luz, a town called Luz, right, where everybody's immortal, but sometimes they, when they get sick of life, because the the, the is not allowed into Luz. Uh, Orcha has a short story version of this. Uh, 
uh, right? And um, so when they get to, when people get old and they want to die, they walk outside the the, the city walls and meet the malachim of this. Uh, right, so there's a lot of evidence in the. There is basis for <coughs> this idea of. Like, yeah, the notion that that halacha, that notion that halacha and Judaism believe that life is always better than death, is I think the simple language is insupportable. Um, right, mm-hmm. people, that's propaganda. It's just not true. Uh, there's lots of evidence for it. Um, there is this. I, I think Jerry might remember that. I think I gave this as a series in my house, in uh, right in Cambridge, so like twenty something years ago, where I, I went through the narratives of quality versus quantity of life. Uh, the series is still on the website. Uh, just going through all those narratives. Uh, Dr. Baruch Brody, who, who we talked about last time, has an article, of, you know, in which he shows the complexity of the halachot of suicide. Uh, you know, that even though we we say it's an absolute. So I, the answer is, I think that that actually is a very well-attested notion. The question of whether you can apply it halachically in this way is a comp- is a hard question. But the notion, but the premise that halacha always favors life. Uh, or at least the Judaism always favors life because <coughs> we think that life is always better than death. That is, um, that's certainly not true. Even the claim that halacha always favors conscious life over death, or that Judaism always favors conscious life over death, is problematic. Um, but that, that we, that, that's a long answer. And if you email me, I'll send yeah. you the links to the, uh, to the old shurim uh, about, about that. Okay. All right. I guess what I'm trying to say, sorry, or just one, one thing yeah. like the that in terms of what well, can uh never mind. Oh. all right <laughs> Rabbi, uh, what, one final comment you know uh, that video with kenny prager uh yes. in in practice there's a committee and they look at the medical record and they're talking about ghosts they're not talking about trefa at all it, it's a very close call and it's evidence-based and they're very careful we're not talking about someone who might die it's, it's really someone who's going to die soon in practice i don't think they're 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 taking ventilators away from people who are not that well at least so, at columbia yeah so they were not functioning i believe under their emergency protocols yet that's what he was talking about the, the committee that w- I, I thought he was talking about a committee that was looking at the medical records and trying to decide if this person was about to die yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I mean, I, we, we, we can look at the Massachusetts protocols and the draft New York protocols, which are not the same as, as what you talked about. Yeah. I think that what I would say is everyone would, they didn't believe that they would get to a situation where they would violate their consequentialist you know, obligations. They didn't think there would be so many patients who could live that long that they would be forced to the choice right now. I think that's true. I don't, I don't know that it was in a principled obje- rejection of that idea. Certainly, Massachusetts is not that way because Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts um, principles are written by Robert Truog, and Robert Truog very explicitly um, rejects all metaphysics. And right, and there, you know, and, and so he th- he thinks you have to be absolutely consequentialist, and therefore he thinks it's perfectly reasonable to say, "How will I have the most years of human life?" Right. That's basically the so Massachusetts principles would wouldn't even limit it to Trefa, probably, from what I understand. But you're right. I don't think what Dr. Prager talked about. If he was accurately conveying what was happening, and yeah, he would not only, know, not only accurately conveying what was happening, but actually conveying what the principle was, right? The, the way it's set up is you have a score, right? Yeah. And but in principle, the way the scoring system is set up is if you have a patient who's a right, is a patient who's a seven, and I forget which way is up, it's higher or lower, right? But there's no, you move the you you move the ventilator if you don't have enough ventilators and you have a patient with a higher score waiting. It doesn't matter how high the score of the patient the ventilator is on now. 
all that matters is that there's a patient with a higher score waiting. Right? The yeah. I, I don't think he was talking about that. But. I don't think he thinks it, it has to come to that. That's, I think in principle, it wasn't coming to the, I think in practice, it wasn't coming to that. In principle, I don't know that the, that the, that the I, I suspect that the, the way that the, if you read the principles, they say patient lower score, patient higher score, you don't have enough ventilators, you move it. That's yeah. what I think. Okay. If, if okay. we're all created equal, then we shouldn't have a, 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 a category of trafer. It sounds like it's an animal. You've got the kosher animals and you've got the trafer animals. And it sounds like some people are better than others if you call them trafers. Uh, well, okay, I'm with you. I'm pretty much with you on that. Although I think that it's not a created equal issue because trefa generally is a condition that occurs after, you know, after birth. But I, I agree with you. You know, that's, that's why I set up the first, you know, in the first series, in the, the first year, I tried to set up a principle that would not allow for this. Um, but I can't deny that, you know, that that's not the absolute yeah. consensus of the position. I hope that I'll be able to demonstrate at the end of this that it's a viable Alakic position to reject that. Sorry, I coughed. I know you muted me. I guess I was coughing. I'm sorry. I wouldn't mute myself. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I mute everybody unless they're talking. Oh. All right. That's the general rule. Um, okay. Other questions? Uh, yes. Yeah, I guess one more thing. Do you think the analysis changes if, let's say, the person who's on the ventilator owns the ventilator? Like, uh, Good question. Example, like, like, for example, think about the related case. Say I have food and you steal my food and that causes me to die. Is there a difference between that and refusing Great to question. sell? Great question. I don't food? want to answer that yet. Okay. Yeah. Rezalman doesn't address that question. He's not really interested in the, in the canteen case, right? That's the canteen case. It doesn't matter who owns the water. Right, right. Right. So we'll get to that, but I'm not going to get to that, but not yet. Okay. Okay. Other questions? All right. Thank you very much, everybody. And I will put out, send out the schedule for next week, God willing, uh, by Sunday. Uh, have a great Shabbos. Thanks.